right. I am now joined by Thaddeus Russell, uh, who is the um, host of the Unregistered Podcast and the, you know, main convener, I guess, of uh, Renegade University, and is um, out of the uh, out of the people that I talk to the most. Who I disagree with the least is probably who I agree with the least is probably my favorite. How are you doing today, Thaddeus? Oh, Ben, I would say the same about you, sir. So, um, <laughs> good. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, this is going to be pretty freewheeling. If people want to call in to ask about things that have nothing to do with the next few minutes, uh, please feel free to uh, to do so. I mean, it's a call-in show. The whole point is you should, you know, you should let us know what's on your mind and you know see if we can speak to it. But um, the subject that I've been thinking about the most uh, while talking to Thad lately is Marxism, because we just finished co-teaching this um, course, this month-long course uh, on Karl Marx at Renegade University, which was a lot of fun. It was like a good, like a bunch of students, a really interesting political mixture of students. Uh, you, You had... Um, you know, you had people who were, you know, straight up libertarians who didn't agree with the source material about anything that they're trying to understand. Mm-hmm. You had, mm-hmm. I think at least two or three people who were like very committed socialists, but were also like, yeah, now Marx is wrong about X, Y, and Z. And like that is mm-hmm. the one kind of defending Marx about X, Y, and Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. We're going to do a version of it again in May, uh, where we're going to do a sort of, uh, rapid force march through uh, Capital Volume 1, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, an intensive study, we're calling it. Eight, uh, four weeks, eight sessions. Fantastic. Yeah, so I, I guess... Um, so, I mean, I guess one thing that makes this really interesting material is that, like, kind of abstracting from the politics for half a second, uh, that... Marx is somebody who has more interesting things to say about a broader range of topics than just about any other comparable historical thinker because he has, um, you know, he has a theory of history, he has a theory of how capitalist society works, uh, he has a theory about how historical change for different economic structures work, and he has... Um, and it's and he has a normative political program that's all attached to and you know just saying that by itself doesn't necessarily tell you why is that interested because like plenty of weird cranks have theories of everything, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But uh, but he has you know like di- agree or disagree he has like interesting theories about all of those things. I'd say so. Yeah, I mean I think I've said this to you. I've said this publicly when I read Capital. Uh, cover to cover in graduate school, I I had sort of it felt like a religious experience when I was done. I just felt like I had been in the presence of magnificence. It's a I still think it is the greatest work of social science that I've ever read, and in part because as you're saying, it unifies or integrates all these far flung theories about virtually every aspect of human existence. You know, you met, you didn't even mention all his economic theories, right? I mean, which are maybe at the base of right. much of his other stuff, but. Yeah, it's um, it's an incredible accomplishment, and I find every time I read it that it reads differently. 
uh, I see new things in it. I see different ways that Marx is thinking. And it's so nuanced that it's impossible to have a simple, a simple, single reaction to Marx and a simple mm-hmm. sort of response to his ideas. But I, I, I love going through it. I love reading his writing, especially. I think someone said he wrote with a hammer. Is that right? Someone said that about Marx, right? And you really feel that, especially when you read Capital. So it was, it was a magnificent experience. Can't wait to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think that we got in the Marx class, we just kind of, um, well, I mean, we probably spent like two or three hours at least on uh, on Capital, but, you know, it, it felt like, it's like, okay, so that's like two pages Capital that we went over. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's a lot, uh, there's obviously like tons there that we didn't get to, which is which is one reason why I'm excited about doing the, the course in... Um, in May, but you know, I also just feel like it's something that everybody, um, like, I'm not going to say that everybody should read it because I think that like not everybody has the, uh, you know, the time or the inclination or you know, etc. Uh, but like, I, I think that it's, I think that it's something that you really benefit from reading, like, kind of uh, across the board, you know, because because it's. Um, if nothing else, you know, you're, you're engaging with, um, these, you know, arguments that in some ways Marx has been, you know, by the time he writes capital in what the 1860s, you know, he's, he's been, he's been thinking about in different ways for, for decades, you know, I mean, read the mm-hmm. economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 or the, uh, the communist manifesto, you know, there, there are things in there, that are like these, like really like rough sketches of ideas that are developed at great length in um, in Capital, and and it's and it's uh, it's something that I, I think you know at the very least, I mean, it's the sort of most systematic exposition of the ways that Marx thought all of these ideas came together. But it's also um, it's it's also like I think one thing that's a little bit hard to convey, and that I think also a lot of people who try to read it, like who go to like who like try to participate in one of these like capital reading groups that like most people don't get through six you know like more than a few months of, uh, is that it's uh, once you get into like the main body of it, you know, a few chapters in, it's like just as literature, it's much better than like any book about political economy has a right to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, totally. Yes, indeed. As I said he wrote with a hammer. I um, I think the thing that for me stood out the most when we taught this course was yeah. how much how much concern Marx had for human freedom. You know, you see that in there, and I think I think that he was maybe primarily concerned with the lack of freedom in capitalism mm-hmm. for workers. You know, there's a lot. Not just the early Marx, which is very sort of famously sort of hippie and is concerned for, you know, the the lack of time, the alienation that the worker faces under capitalism. Yeah. But he talks about it as freedom. You know, you're unable to to go to the river, to go to the lake, and you're unable to read poetry. You're unable to sit under a tree and ponder life. These are the things he talks about. You know, it's very it's not what you would expect from a hard headed social scientific Marxist. But it's very much a concern of a human being who's living in a world that suddenly is full of unfreedom. 
where there are factories in which people work all day, which are giant boxes. And mm-hmm. people are now primarily, almost exclusively concerned about surviving in this new way under wage labor, which is a daily, hour-to-hour, constant concern for working for working-class people for the first time in human history in this way. And it's a whole system of unfreedom, I, see, I think, it's certainly at the, in the early 19th century capitalism. But I, it, was, it was nice to see that, and it was nice to sort of have libertarians see that Marx had their concern, right? Libertarians talk mm-hmm. about personal freedom, but here was Marx. Now, of course, they have very different answers for how to achieve or protect sure, personal freedom, but that he wanted the same thing that, you know, the Ron Pauls of the world wanted, I think is a great starting place. You know, then we can then we can talk about how to get there, but we now know that there's no bad faith here on either side. You know, we're all interested in freedom, at least in part. And so then it's just a question of strategy, right? It's not a question any longer of who's immoral or who's moral or who's good or who's bad or who's a lackey for the capitalists or who's exploitative, but we all want the same thing in that way, and we just have to talk about how to get it. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, I think it shows that there's some, like, overlap in underlying value systems, even if, you know, even if there are all sorts of disagreements about kind of what... um, you know, what counts, right, or sort of what dimensions of freedom we should be interested in. But I, I, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me, you know, about Marx, because I think that, you know, I think it makes sense, too, because you say it's not really what you expect from a hard-headed sort of, um, you know, political economist. But it's worth remembering that he doesn't start out as a hard-headed political economist, and, and there's a reason that he becomes one, right, that he he starts out in this sort of milieu of uh, young Hegelian, basically liberal democratic 19th century revolutionaries uh, in a, in a time and place, right? Several decades after the French revolution, when it's becoming more obvious to more people that sort of uh, political liberation isn't the whole ball game, that there, that there is something, you know, what people back then called the social question, uh, how to, how to think about like underlying social structures and how they might, be objectionable in the same ways that the big obvious political ones are. And that's like kind of where he starts and he becomes a hard-headed political economist because his analysis is that you have to figure out how, like you have to have this like sort of precise analysis of how economies work and all that stuff in order to, in order to, to understand that social question because of those sort of underlying concerns about, you know, human freedom that like, any kind of, you know, 1830s, 40s student revolutionaries could be worried about. Yeah. I mean, so the, the classic formulation is that the right wing is concerned with tradition and hierarchy, and the left wing is concerned with equality, mm-hmm. right? And rather than against freedom, right? Because equality is often posed against freedom. But right. I, I guess what I'm saying is here that, and and I and I one of the, my maybe my biggest problem with the modern left mm-hmm. is that the the word the concern the issue of freedom liberation has dropped out. I mean, almost no one talks about it on the left. Corey Robin is maybe the only one who's done a serious serious work on this recently. But his answer, of course, is the traditional socialist answer, also a Marxist one, which is that equality will bring freedom. Right? Once you once you no longer have to worry about you know surviving under wage labor, uh, capitalism, you, you will then have the time and the freedom to experience life fully. Um, so I, I find that 
this undercuts all the sort of bad faith assumptions, which which usually ha- you have in these kinds of arguments, these discussions between the left and the right, where the left assumes that right wingers simply want to install a monarch and oppress everyone and grind the peasants and the working class to dust, and the left assumes, or the and the and the right assumes that the left wants to put us all in gulags where we where we're all equal. We're all equal, but of course, there's no freedom. So again, I just I, I love finding excavating in the origins of the modern left a a primary, maybe overweening concern for human freedom. So it's there, it is in there, and I would like for the left to become more interested in that. And I would like for the right wing to see that there has been a concern in the left for freedom dating back to its originators. Yeah. Uh, there's so much to be said about that, but we have like yeah. three or four people, I think, waiting in the queue. So let's let's Great. start getting some of them in here. Let's do it. All right. Uh, Kosha, are you there? Kusha, yes. Thank you very Kusha. much. My apologies. No, no worries. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Yeah, um, what's on your mind? Thank you. Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you about is one uh, line that's very uh, closely associated with Marx's legacy. I believe it's in the Communist Manifesto towards the end, if I'm not mistaken. It's the Workers of the World Unite line. And the reason why I'm curious to ask about this, and mm-hmm. of course, it, it's one of the famous things associated with Marx alongside like the opiate of the masses when his uh, view of religion is brought up. But um, I'm curious about your thoughts on this, because I've noticed through following a number of journalists and pundits in the U.S. left that there is a tendency among a certain vocal and decently platformed segment of the U.S. left um, that's fundamentally opposed to this very sentiment. And I can elaborate on that. Yeah, please. uh, Sure. So specifically when it comes to showing solidarity with labor protests and demonstrations for justice, liberty, and progress in countries like the Islamic Republic of Iran or Syria, for instance. Even when uh, you think about uh, the British leader, Jeremy Corbyn, um, he's faced this hesitation in outright showing solidarity to courageous you know, worker organizers in Iran, like Ismail Bakhshi, Jafar Azimzadeh, Parvin Mohammadi, and Sepi Devolyan, all of whom have faced so many any threats lives, and you know, uh, many of them of the four I mentioned been in prison and so on. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn will show solidarity to people like uh, Bani Saad, the first president, if I'm not mistaken, of the Islamic Republic of Iran in the 80s. And this is all while the people of Iran have a largely secular worldview. Um, but mm-hmm. there are so many different schools of thought, whether that's the intelligence agencies, mainstream political establishment, cultural relativists or self-ascribed anti-imperialists that really work to prevent the uh, unity among the workers of the world in certain parts uh, that are deemed enemy governments of the United States. And why I'm hmm. concerned is because Marx never said that there are two groups of workers who must uh-huh. There's one set who live under the U.S. and its allied governments, and there's a second set of workers who live under enemy governments, and that only workers in mm-hmm. each set should unite and that workers across those two groups should never collaborate and stand for each other in the name of decency and progress and, and humanity. Mm-hmm. And so I'd really love to know your thoughts on it. I gave some huh. uh, background on it, and I'd really love to hear you um, describe yeah. your thoughts. 
yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say first of all, really specifically on 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 Corbin, right? Since since I will I will cop to being a huge uh, Corbin apologist, although which is not to say he always gets this stuff right. I just think he's had a really positive role overall. But I think that um, I'm less familiar with his specific comments on Iran. I know there are at least some contexts in which I think he's got in the balance of what you're talking about right. I think that, like in the '80s, for example, you know, I know he was. Um, uh, you know, I mean, he was like very supportive of, uh, the, of like worker protests in Poland, um, you know, that were being suppressed, you know, by the, the Soviets and Soviet backed government. But, but I, I think like maybe, you know, I mean, you probably know more than I do about the, the Iran comments and what might be wrong with that. And, I'd love and maybe, to share with you if you'd like to know the specifics, Ben. Uh, sure. But I, I think what I, you know, I, I mean, I'm open to that, but I, I would, um, but I, I think I'd also like to kind of steer towards the sort of broader topic that I think you're talking about, sure, which yes, is, absolutely. you know, which is the sort of relationship between anti-imperialism and um, anti-authoritarianism, right? In other words, like between two things that uh, the left cares about. And actually, I mean, honestly, since, uh, you know, in some ways going to some of the themes from what Thad was talking about earlier, I don't think this is a unique problem for the left. I think that like, um, Mm -hmm. I think that like libertarian anti-imperialists often, often have the same, like struggle with the same thing. Right. You know, which is the sort of um, you, you want to, there are like kind of two imperatives here that both make sense, which are sort of solidarity with people who are opposing uh, their own governments for people for reasons that, you know, ideologically you're very simpatico with, uh, while at the same time not wanting to feed into sort of propaganda for like, you know, a t- like aggression against those countries by, by the United States. I mean, that's, that's, I think the basic, mm-hmm. I think that's the, I think that's the basic dilemma. And, and I have, um, and, you know, I, I think it's one where, you know, that a lot of people go wrong on in a lot of different directions. And I, I, I could say, a lot more about that, but but I do want to maybe throw that also to to Thad because I I think that this kind of territory about like sort of uh, you know anti imperialism and and how to think about like kind of you know despotisms you know in in other societies that you know that like maybe you know that maybe the United States talks about you know like talks up as part of an effort to gin up support for American foreign policy, but that like also really are very despotic. I mean, I think that's also territory mm-hmm. that he, that he thinks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to hear from both of you more about the politics of this. I'm not familiar with this. I don't know sure. what Corbin has said about Iran. I don't know. Uh, I can, I can, I have a guess having been around the left my whole life, what's going on here, but if you could describe more specifically what's going on here, the political issue at hand. Sure. I would love to, Thad. So, for instance, as you know, uh, this is just one example I'm going to give and then tie it to what Corbyn did, right? So Colin okay. Powell uh, passed away, Bush's Secretary of State, who lied to the U.S. in the Iraq War, and he covered up the Milai massacre that yep. Seymour Bush exposed. And uh, many uh, yep. people in the Democratic Party, I think Ro Khanna might have been one of them, gave condolences for him. And it was very heavily frowned upon, right? Because Colin Powell, Powell has a pretty egregious legacy. And similarly, Jeremy Corbyn, on October 11, 2021, put out a tweet saying, quote, saddened to hear about the loss of Abul Hassan Bani Saj, a truly principled and determined man who was always on the side of independence, freedom and justice and fought all his life for the Iranian people, end quote. 
And that's very offensive because Ghani uh, Saad, firstly, was a person who said that women need to cover up their hair because they emit like these waves and and um, that distract like men's minds and make Wait, waves. What was that? Yeah, like waves. <laughs> Women's hair sends off like waves, like radio style waves, okay, stuff okay. like that, All right, yep. that throw off men. Secondly, but that's okay. not the most egregious. He like slaughtered a bunch of Kurds who were resisting the Islamic Republic in the beginning of its consolidation of power. And third, which ties most, and there are others, okay. of course, but third, which ties most to worker organization and labor movements, is that in the beginnings of the revolution in Iran, in 1979 and so on, in is when power was consolidated by the Islamic Republic, there were many worker councils and cooperative models that were formed mm -hmm. and wanted to look into. Um, my father actually was one such worker uh, who was a labor organizer in uh, factories. Uh, they made like aluminum, I believe, and like pipes and things of that nature. And uh, people like Bani Saad were the enforcers for the Islamic Republic who sent in authorities, who sent in the armed forces to break up so much of the labor mm. movements within Iran. Right. They crushed them very viciously. Further, the Iran-Iraq war served as a scapegoat, much as the U.S. does with its wars, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, and so on, to distract from problems at home. The Islamic Republic used the Iraq-Iran war, Islamic Republic war, as an opportunity to consolidate power further. A lot of that has to do with the fact that Saddam Hussein, who was, of course, very brutal and murderous and a butcher, he was goaded into it in many ways by the Islamic Republic, in the sense that he initially sent like a telegram congratulating the Islamic Republic once um, they had attained power. But what Ayatollah Khomeini did, which is similar to what he did to Anwar Sadat, if you've ever seen uh, the interview between Khomeini and Mike Wallace, is like he said, like, oh, all Muslims need to oppose Sadat and try to overthrow Egypt and so on. He did the same thing with Saddam. He was starting to really rally um, any like Shias in Iraq to try to overthrow. And Saddam was not one to like back down. He would get very aggressive and so I executed some top figures or one or two figures and so on. And that's where from there. But um, why I say this is because Corbin showed bad judgment not in just the condolence which is kind of sad, but also mm -hmm. in the people in Iran protesting. Iran is a country which has had many protests over the past 42 years since Islamic Republic took power in a variety of industries, whether those are the teachers, healthcare workers, um, you know, vehicle drivers, uh, you know, sugar factory workers, uh, unit oil and gas workers. And so one of the things that Jeremy Corbyn has done, uh, I believe a few years ago, was saying like, I think it was something about we don't know, it was like one of Jeremy Corbyn's assistants. Um, Emily Thornberry might have been that we don't know like who has the white caps on like who in these protesters between who in these skirmishes between the protesters in Iran and the Islamic Republic's government which mind you like in November 2019 got down like a thousand five hundred people in a few days or week or so I don't know exactly like we don't know who this before that incident we don't know who has like the white cap essentially like who's innocent was the sentence like mm -hmm. it's hard to tell and that was Corbin's assistant and he's as I said, with Bani Saad, with commemorating him like many did with Colin Powell and his hesitation to outright show solidarity, um, this is something that's uh, a concern I've noticed. And he's one example of a political figure who has this tendency to mm -hmm. lead this like anti-imperialism, but without uh, an awareness, for instance, that the anti-imperialism rhetoric was co-opted by the Islamic Republic's right. leaders like Khomeini 
in order to slaughter a bunch of leftists in Iran, like the Tudor Party is a historic left party in Iran. And they were killed right. in hundreds. And the leaders, like Nuruddin Kiyonuri, were imprisoned after going all in on Khomeini on this broad coalition of anti-imperialism to overthrow the last king of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi Shah, because he was perceived to be uh, awful in many regards, for being like a U.S. puppet solely, just focusing on his military expansion, many people living in austerity and so on. So that was the broad coalition that was formed. But immediately, Khomeini betrayed like the left that gave him solidarity. Now, mind you, not all of it did. But what Khomeini did is he betrayed the left in Iran of that anti-imperialist foremost faction, and he betrayed the U.S. that helped him consolidate power. As he said, he said, which means like, I, I deceived. And so that's one thing that's very unique in the Middle East when it comes to anti-imperialism, when you take a look at like Bashar al-Assad or like Hamas in Gaza or Hezbollah in Lebanon, al-Shabi in Iraq, the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is pretty much Iran's like, you know, the Islamic Republic's hand in these regions. And mm-hmm. it doesn't even play by these rules of anti-imperialism itself. Like, it was, the Islamic Republic was happy when Gaddafi was killed. The Islamic Republic was happy when Saddam was killed. Uh, you know, like, they, they want their hands in these different parts of the Middle East if they can get it. They don't even play by, like, this rhetoric okay. of U.S. left anti-imperialism. I said a lot. And I'm really yeah. Uh, okay, so the, so the question sounds like is, according to you, Jeremy Corbyn, and I have no reason to disbelieve you, um, I supported a man in Iran who is an Islamist authoritarian and an enemy of the international working class. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, I could put when, the tweet when, in if when, you'd like. As, yeah. As so well. I believe so. Yeah. No, I'm sure you're right. And then, and then Corbyn doing this is a Marxist socialist. So why on earth would a Marxist socialist political leader of Jeremy Corbyn's stature give support to a man who has spent much of his life crushing movements associated with socialism and Marxism? Right. Why? Well, is this that? is the billion dollar question. That I see from so many self-described anti-imperialists, anti-imperialists um, journalists uh, that I follow closely. Corbyn, one politician who does such. But Melanchon in France is quite a different story. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but he was the former French candidate for president, I believe. He, on the other hand, like condemned Qasem Soleimani after Trump assassinated him and condemned Trump, both as war criminals, both as war mongers, both as brutal, vicious leaders. And that, I feel, is the better sentiment because, in my view, like, it does not preclude one to condemn the Islamic Republic, but also to stop the Washington establishment and the Washington consensus from trying to lead the U.S. into a war that could last tens of years, I don't know how many years, lead to hundreds of thousands of death, destruction, create, like, another Libya. And the people of Iran have so much promise in terms of wanting to strive for more. And that's why... It's, it's, it's always really hard for me to see this type of like domestically progressive sentiment among the left in the U.S. Yeah. England well, so. But when it, it comes to international uh, views, yeah. there's this like foremost emphasis on the cultural relativism, which necessarily in Iran isn't even true in terms of wanting one. Wanting sure. I, I, I got you. That makes sense. Were you, you going to say that? Um, well, I mean, so this sort of reminds me of the 1960s and early 1970s when the Amer- much of the american left not only opposed the vietnam war but they expressed solidarity with ho chi minh and the viet cong right right who now now that however 
even though I'm 100% opposed to that, and that was one of the major breaks for me from much of the left, um, because to me, the Viet Cong and Ho Chi Minh were ranked authoritarians, of course, but, but at least that made more sense because Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong were at least communists, right? So the left, it made some sense, certainly made some sense on their own terms for the left to support those movements in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Now, I think yes. it was a mistake. If you're, if, you're an anti-authoritarian, if you're an anti-authoritarian leftist, you shouldn't have done that, but at least it does make sense to me. However, now we're talking about someone who's not a socialist, not a Marxist, Maybe an anti-socialist, right? Absolutely crushed. Right. So, so, so hang on. With CIA backing. Yeah, I got it. I know. I I know. So, so that just seems to me to be a grotesque mistake on the left. Now, why do you think the left would do this? Is it because (laughs) they are willing to? They are so opposed to American imperialism that they are willing Mm -hmm. to join to join with any enemy of American imperialism. That the enemy Mm -hmm. of my enemy is my friend. And they're willing yeah. to throw away any other principle besides that in coalition building. I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean I think I think I think there I think there is quite a I think there is quite a bit of that, and and I also think it's not. Um, I don't even see that just on the left, right? I mean, I I think I see that among sure. like anti-imperialists in general. <laughs> you know that that uh-huh. they, this mm-hmm. is something that people often uh, often fall into. You know that like mm. it's a very you know I I think that. So, I mean, I think there are two issues, right? One is like, you know, the Jeremy Corbyn comments about this stuff, and the other is like the more general tendency. I mean, I think on the on the Corbyn front, uh, I think because the uh, the I think your first analogy was, you know, was probably to my mind closer to what's going on in this case than the sort of like, you know, ho 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 Chi Minh, you know, Vietnam's going to win stuff that like mm-hmm. uh, because I think with I think with Corbyn. Um, a lot of the a lot of the kinds of comments that have gotten him into trouble, I think, come from the fact that um, I think you know, and I mean, I'm somebody who likes Corbin, but I think that like I think he's not like you had to use the word Marxist earlier, and I I think that he, I think that what Corbin is is like a good principled sort of left social democrat piece, Nick, uh, in that sort of like in a little bit of that kind of mode of like that old line about how the British labor party owes more to Methodism than Marxism, uh, that, uh, yeah. that there's, you know, and, and I think that like his sort of, you know, his version of being a peace, Nick, I think is very much tied to the sort of mode of like this kind of old fashioned sort of like, um, Christian socialism. Yeah, like like friendship and reconciliation kinds of politics, you know. So like he'll yeah. you know he'll make a lot of comments about like uh, you know you know so it's like very much about about promoting you know diplomatic understanding you know between countries and having uh, you know he'll make a lot of like you know you can find lots of old comments from him where he says um, you know we you know we hope you know our you know, our friends in Israel and our friends in Hamas, you know, like come together <laughs> and make peace and whatever, you know, and it's like, and so, and so of course, you know, the, the sort of standard like British tabloid thing is to jump on the friends in Hamas part. If anybody actually wanted mm-hmm. to get upset about him on the other part, they'd have a point there too. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, cause like oftentimes he's talking about some like hideously reactionary Likud kind of politician. So I, I, I think in his case, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's probably a lot of what's going on. I think it is very similar to like even like mm. some like members of the squad in Congress who made like who like said nice things about Colin Powell after he died, 
Um, huh. You know, which which I didn't like that either, right? Like, I, I don't know how many of them did, but I think Jamal Bowman did. I didn't, I didn't like it. Uh, I think did, yeah. But, um, mm. but in any case, you know, like, I, I think it's like, I don't, I don't like worry too much about it because I think as far as like politician flaws, it's like you know the kind I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over. But like I, I'm like a little bit more upset if like people who like um, comment on politics and like don't need to like you know entertain certain kinds of niceties, you know, like you know, talk the same way. Uh, and, and I do see a lot of that. I mean, I do see a lot of what the caller is talking about. Uh, that, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of American anti-imperialists do sort of fall into this thing where they end up kind of minimizing the, uh, or denying, you know, some of the crimes of, uh, regimes that come into conflict with the American empire. Uh, and, and like, I think there, there are people who I'm not going to name because I actually really like them who I see fall into this. Uh, and, um, and I think that that's, I don't, I mean, I basically agree with the caller. I mean, I think that it's, I think that it's like entirely possible to walk and chew bubble gum on this, but I think it's just <laughs> that for whatever reason in kind of contemporary radical American political culture, and maybe this is a side effect of some of the ways that like general American political culture has gotten ridiculous. I think a lot of people have gotten a lot worse about it, right? Like in, in 2002, mm-hmm. When the world and I were both young, you know, I, I I was like spending all of my time, you know, organizing and participating in anti-war protests, and I never heard anybody feel the need to like say nice things about Saddam Hussein or deny that he was a monster, <laughs> you know, like it's, right. uh, every, everybody was sort of everybody seemed to be sort of capable of holding two thoughts in their head about you know why <laughs> uh, a war would be so horrible, but also, like, obviously Saddam Hussein is a monster. Uh, mm-hmm. So, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I guess my basic answer would be that I, I agree with you, that I, I think that it's a, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think, I think something about the dynamics of commenting on politics in this way in America in 2022, perhaps Britain, too, to the extent that your critique of Corbyn you know, you know, counts as an example, I think makes it hard for a lot of people to sort of hold on to both ends of that equation, but it shouldn't be hard. Right. I mean, like you were Mm -hmm. talking about Marx, but I mean, we could update it, right. We could talk about like, you know, Eugene V. Debs and his, his, um, like his famous, like anti-war speech in Ohio that got him sent to prison, you know, during world war one, like you'll notice that he, there's no part of that speech where he's like, Oh, and by the way, you know, the Kaiser's actually not a bad guy. Like that's, that's right. not, you know, that's not something you would have said. In fact, you would have seen that as like a prof- profound betrayal of German workers if he had said that. And I, mm-hmm. I, I see a lot of, uh, I, I do see a lot of people, I think, failing to kind of get that um, balance right. Like even, you know, like like you can say, um, like you should be able to say that like Russia's like regional mini imperialism is bad. And that Putin is like a mm-hmm. hyper reactionary oligarch, and like also that like it would be the worst thing possibly literally imaginable for the United States to involve itself in a war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. <laughs> you know that like I think the invasion of Panama was really bad, but I'm just as happy that you know Gorbachev didn't send the Red Army to get involved. Um, and and you know I, I think that you know I, I think people should be able to say the same parody reasoning here, but I think that it's like. I don't know this. Maybe this is going to sound like kind of like a weird banal thing to say, but I think that it's just for whatever reason, I think in American like 
something about the sort of space of American media right now. And I always recommend that people read Matt Taibbi's book, Hate Inc., uh, which is whatever you think of, you know, some of Taibbi's, you know, political commentary the last couple of years. I think it's a, I think it's the best sort of analysis of what's happened to American media that I've mm-hmm. read. Uh, and it's, it's all about kind of the way that the economic collapse, you know, like he, he initially intended the book as an update to manufacturing consent by Chomsky and Herman. And then he kind of realized that what's wrong with the American media is in many ways very different from what was wrong with the American media that Chomsky and Herman were talking about. And he talks about the way that the collapse of traditional media has sort of really incentivizes this business model. That's all about like pandering to whatever, like, shard of your old audience you still have left and like keeping them like worked up into a constant state of frenzy and mm-hmm. um and i think that i think that part of the dynamics of that and i think this spills out like i think this has like trickle down effects even to like you know radicals you know like like you know by which i don't you know like whatever socialists communists anarchists like hardcore anti-imperialist libertarians whoever you know that like i think that like I think it trains people to think and talk about politics in certain ways where they, it's like really important that the main thing that you're doing is say the opposite of whatever the people that you most hate are saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a very, it's actually ironically, it's a very Christian sort of instinct. The, the, the sort of, it's a feeling really that there's good and evil in the world. It's a Manichaean vision of the world and you're either with God or you're with the devil. And if you are in any way associated with Satan, you cannot associate yourself with anything associated with him, right? So this is, I mean, this is in the age of Trump, especially. If oh, you have yeah. any connection to Trump in any way at all, even if you have said a phrase that Trump has uttered, you will be associated with the devil and you will be just dismissed and thrown away entirely. So it's it's a very, it's ironically, it's a very Christian sort of instinct or feeling um, on the left that prides itself on being secular, <laughs> I think. <laughs> No, I think there's a lot of that. I think that the, I think Trump especially, and like, this is something uh-huh. that like Taibbi gets into about in Hate Inc. That like, um, like the problem, basically it kind of like, even apart from Trump's actual presidency, you know, which, which you know, I regard as disastrous in lots of ways, you know, like I, I think that like just Trump's existence, like even if, you know, like he was just way too good for ratings, and so everything, like all of media and everything sort of became about him. And there has to be like some sort of Trump angle to every story. And there has to, you know, like, um, and, and so I think part of the effect of that, yeah, is, it, is people end up like reorienting on various sides. I think reorienting their entire worldview around like either defending or attacking Trump. So like somehow, like in 2012, I mean, stick with the Russia example, Nobody remembers this. In the 2012 debates, there was a question about um, what do you think America's greatest, like the greatest threat to America is in the world. And uh, Obama said climate change. And, um, and Mitt Romney said Russia. And, mm. like, and, and like MSNBC kind of liberal media relentlessly, and by the way, correctly mocked him for saying that. That right. like, you know, this, right. you know, this, <laughs> kind of, how soon they forget who to hate. You know, this country that with like an economy the size of Italy is like the greatest threat to you know the um, to the uh-huh. you know to to this like overwhelmingly dominant global hegemon. Uh, but um, but yeah, I, I think that it makes like I think that the fact that like either sort of working out people's anger about Trump or else like 
you know, triggering people who are angry about Trump, you know, kind of became the focal point of how so many people saw the world has like just mm-hmm. just made this like, you know, way more unpleasant to even like, you know, try to talk to people about any of this stuff now. But I want to uh, I want to keep moving because we have a few more calls. Uh, Tom. Yeah. Hey, what's up, guys? Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay, so uh, to follow up on the previous caller, which, funny enough, I was right after him yesterday on uh, Brianna's podcast, mm-hmm. um, Colin. Uh, I, I kind of brought, like, a good point up. Um, mm-hmm. I'm terrible at articulating myself, so I'll fumble a little bit. Um, I was thinking about your episode on, like, you know, Christopher Hitchens and people like Sam Harris and, you know, that crowd and everything. And I'm kind of, like, remembering when I kind of, like, I guess, renounced my faith, you know, like, my late teenage years in the late 2000s. I remember I became, like, a massive Christopher Hitchens fan. You know, there's, like, that that excitement when you feel like you've pulled the scales off your eyes and, like, you mm-hmm. found the hidden truth, the revealed truth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh... But as I've gotten older and, you know, I'm I'm involved in a little bit of labor. I work in construction and I've been involved in, like, the attempt to unionize a fairly large construction company in New York before. And one of the things I've kind of come to realize is that, like, how how do I explain this? Like, when, like, I'm a huge fan of Christopher Hitchens, but I would never send his material to any kind of believer that was on the fence because of his very kind of like aggressive and vitriolic mm-hmm. approach and this is the same thing with sam harris like i find his podcast and his stuff extremely informative i wouldn't in a million years send any of his shit on islam to any of my muslim friends <laughs> but i like some of the stuff he has to say like it, it feels like very almost cathartic I'm not talking about nuclear first strikes and shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, to an extent, this is very much how I feel about kind of like the online left. Uh-huh. And there are a lot of fantastic podcasters and authors and all kinds of stuff that are very informing. But, like, I wouldn't send them to any of my right-wing friends except for, like, you and Brianna Joy Gray, but the list of actual online leftists mm-hmm. or left-adjacent people feels like it's becoming... It, it's not getting smaller, but it seems like it's staying the same. And the overall That's... online kind of left ecosphere has become, like, self-sustaining. You know, mm-hmm. I, I read the... I, I follow the Chapel Trap House guys. You know, yeah. they're pulling 1.9 million or something crazy a year. And maybe this is a little black-pilled of me, but I'm, I kind of feel like... As a movement, we are wasting our money, investing uh-huh. so much into, like, you know, the catharsis of, like, Chapo, right? Yeah. It's hilarious the way they just shit on people. They're really great at it, and they're really witty and funny. But a big part of our movement on the ground level is just totally, like, it, it, there's no funding. There's no – it is like there's nothing, and I don't even know the question I'm trying to pose, honestly. I'm terrible at this. But I guess I'm going to ask for you guys, as two people who are relatively either heterodox or you guys do seem very good at, like, reaching out to people across the aisle, so to speak. Like, yeah. Do, do you do you agree with me? <clears throat> like, what do you see about the future? Where have you had successes and failures? Blah, blah, blah. 
I, I agree with everything except I find nothing of value in Sam Harris's podcasts. <laughs> Uh, what's what's an, what's a little nuclear first strike between friends anyway, you know? But uh, the I, I guess what you're talking about here is what I see as, and I hate to be harsh, but I'm going yeah. to be, and I think I think I'm allowed to since I'm from the family, as it were, the intellectual bankruptcy of the left. I'm sorry, but I just think since about the 1980s or 90s, since since gender was introduced into our thinking. I don't think we've had a new idea. The woke stuff is a retread of Frankfurt School and maybe a little bit of Maoism, too. Well, there's been no significant, I'd say, positive ideas, valuable ideas on the left since about when I was a teenager. So I think that's what's going on. It's a movement and always has been a movement primarily of intellectuals, which doesn't in itself mean it was a bad thing. But that's you have to acknowledge that, that the left movement, especially in the United States and especially in the United States, has been all about university professors and journalists and people who sit at desks and write and think like Ben and me. And so it, it's never reached deep into the working class in this country. And even really globally, it never has. Even in places like Great Britain, where it's sort of famously part of the major labor party, most of the British working class isn't really socialist and never has been. So that means you tend to, you know, if it's just intellectuals who live just in their heads and who experience the world in their heads, they tend to start to recycle things when the world doesn't change according to what they hoped it would, right? So they keep they start to recycle the ideas, the ideas start to turn in on themselves, the people start to turn in on themselves, it's very insular, everybody on the left knows each other, right? It becomes It's very much a family, almost like a church. And so in a church, this is what you see, you see splits because people look inward because they agree on all the basic premises, they agree on all the basic ideas, the major ideas. There is a God. It is the Christian God. The Bible is correct, etc. So there's not much to disagree about. So they start to find disagreements. And it always devolves into personal battles, interpersonal battles that have very little or nothing to do with actual real world politics. The stuff that's happening in the streets, in Congress, you know, on the battlefields. It, right? It's, it becomes more and more obscure, more and more personal, more and more intellectual, more and more abstract. More talk about the people which is an abstraction as opposed to specific individuals and groups of people. I, I just think this is the fundamental problem. I don't even know how to resolve this. I think it may just be the ultimate failure of the left to ever find ground in real, per, real people's lives and especially working class people's lives. It's an intellectual movement. And I think that is really the Achilles heel of the whole thing since Marx, who, what was Marx? He was an intellectual. He was a professor who sat at a desk in the British Museum and wrote his books. That's what he did. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think that's the problem. Yeah, I, I actually agree with about 40% of that, I think. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I think, um, like, I do think that there are, you know, I mean, I think over the course of history, like you mentioned, Britain. I think that there have been times when the British working class has been much more socialist. Sure. And, um, you know, I think if you read like E.P. Thompson, you know, the making of the English working class, uh, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, and I, I think like the, the British Labour Party, you know, like was um, at one time, uh, although see above, never exactly Marxist, but it was like, I, I think like there was a time when it was like, both pretty socialist and like has like a really ex extensive sort of working class uh, base, sure. but but I do um, and and you know but I do think that 
like, you know, I do think there's something right about what, what you're saying. I mean, I think that the, um, I think it's, I think it's probably inevitably true that any kind of radical movement is always going to start mm-hmm. with, uh, with intellectuals. I think that's probably like unavoidable because mm-hmm. like who has the like time and bandwidth and you know like etc wait, wait a minute wait a minute ben wait a minute you sounding alien you're sounding to, to well don't don't worry i'll get to that uh to uh to uh to question like basic things about like you know like like one of the things mark says in capital is that you know science is only necessary when there's a conflict between appearances and reality and so like if you're um um so if you're saying things that like like really like reject the sort of surface level appearance of like how things are seem to most people in a society. And I think any, like any society that lasts for five, for more than five minutes, most of the time things are going to seem way, seem ways to most people that aren't going to lead them to want to overthrow that society. Right. So, uh, so if you're, if you're questioning that, yeah, I think it is probably inevitably going to start there, but I think that the question is whether it stays there and how connected, um, intellectuals are to to something that's like more organic and that's more rooted in in you know the a mass movement or you know or in the working class and i think that that's like very wildly historically and i think that i and i think that like to really bring it to um you know and and i think that like right now the u.s left is just in a very bad place with that uh because um I mean, like Adolf Reed has this line where he says that, you know, that like there actually isn't really a left in the United States right now. At best, there's something that like maybe uh-huh. if everything goes just right, you can look back on it and say, oh, yeah, that was the left. But like, you know, that's uh-huh. like there's, there's nothing, um, you know, like what you basically have are some academics and some journalists and, you know, uh, uh-huh. a, a vast legion of podcasters, you know, uh-huh. and, uh, <laughs> and, and like and some people who are like, you know, union activists, for example, right? You know, but that's not really mm-hmm. the dominant strain. Mm-hmm. And and I think that like I think that really specifically in terms of some of what the caller is talking about, you know, if you like the trajectory of the last few years, I mean look, it's a poor substitute for like, you know, I don't know, like the sit down strikes of the nineteen thirties or something. Uh <laughs> but um, but like the the two Bernie Sanders campaigns for president were at least things that like got like we're we're like a, a significant development in the world outside of the sort of um publications and studies of right. um of you know social you know of of socialists and these were things that like um that that sort of altered the political landscape that like suddenly there was this sort of other perspective that was seen as like being in the mix and people had to respond to it it got tons of people excited and like most people, right? I mean, the caller mentioned Chapo, right? I would imagine, I, I guess I don't have data on this, but if I had to guess, I would say like the median Chapo listener only really got into left-wing politics in like 2016, you mm-hmm. know, 2015 maybe, right? That they And mm-hmm. so as part of this like influx of new people, like, you know, I mean, I, uh, you know, I am, you know, for better or for worse, a DSA member and I joined in like, December 2015, which means that I've been in the organization longer than I think like 95% of current members. Uh, so, so there is this massive influx, which is, which is good. It's healthy. 
Uh, it, it also does lead people to be confused about things and to refight a lot of battles and whatnot, but like you need it. And I think part of what the caller is identifying is that like all of this media stuff, right? Like I, I always say, like, I, I think I really worry, you know, about how many people are like consumers of left media. And I hope I don't contribute to this who are confused about the difference between politics and commenting on politics, because those are just <laughs> like fundamentally different activities, right? Like if right. you can, if you can see why, um, like, you know, if somebody like, if, you know, like, like Jerry Jones, isn't going to say, you know, you know, the Cowboys next quarterback should be Skip Bayless, right? You know, cause, cause he, he, uh, right. you know, cause he talks, he talks about football. He talks the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Right. You know, that it's like, uh, actual politics is is something that you know that happens. Well, you know, I, I I mean, I think I think that like media can play like a a useful supportive role, but that's what it is. I think it's a useful supportive role. Well, and the thing is, sorry to cut you off, but like, yeah, I mean, go to for be, it. To be to be Hegelian here, yeah, <laughs> and maybe, maybe Foucauldian. Um, uh, Skip Bayless in his all his talking does affect who is the quarterback sure. for the Cowboys. Yeah, that's true. Right? And so, you know, discourse is power in that way. And Skip Bayless is a very powerful person in that world, and so his discourse is especially powerful. So ideas do matter just as much as, you know, physical nuts and bolts stuff, don't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think... Yeah, I mean, much bigger discussion, but uh, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that, uh, which we did about which we did about six hours on in class. Yes. Yeah, right. we we did do about six hours in class. Uh, I I think that there I think there I think there are ways that ideas matter a lot. I think that I I, I think there are ways that they can't change the world all by themselves. It's a huge discussion. I think we actually had a really sure. good discussion about it in class. But uh, but I but but I would just say I I think what the caller is really identified is that like there is a sense that I think you have to to like face up to this, that like, even like I said, as pitiful as a substitute it is, it is for like the, you know, like a wave of sit down strikes in the late thirties or something. Um, I think that sort of left electoral upsurge and like from 2015 to 2020 is something that got a lot of new people in, got a lot of new people excited. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it helpfully oriented like lefty intellectuals and writers to like trying to see themselves as being in a supportive role for like a movement that was doing things in the real world. And I think right now the tide has come in to a great extent, right. You know, that the, uh, that like it's, it's, it's receded, right. You know, that the, that, and, um, and people often get way too focused on the, uh, the media itself in ways that sort of miss the fact that like, whether your favorite podcaster, you know, <laughs> is like, you know, has really owned your like least favorite last <laughs> podcaster is right. completely irrelevant to anything that happens, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the world, sure. right? That could that could actually affect any, any of your goals. So I think that like, uh, so so I think that the um, and, and I think like maybe to try to tie it back to the first part of the question. I mean, I obviously share your bias about you know Sam Harris. I know lots of people have gotten you know have have gotten lots of things that they find useful from it, but I can't stand the guy. But uh, but I have. Um, <laughs> But but I think about that. I think kind of what what your what the caller's probably saying about like how they wouldn't like. Even though I think like you know to be fair, I think like the new atheists, the late two thousands, probably did help lots of people who were in the caller's position who were like sort of at a point where they were ready to like question some of this stuff, and they were there mm-hmm. sort of like there 
there to latch on to. But I think that, mm-hmm. like, I, I, I get what they mean when they say there's a certain kind of, like, strident new atheist thing that they don't think it would move the needle in any useful way, you know, if they, uh, if they said to, to, you know, to, to religious people or even people who are maybe, you know, just starting <clears throat> questions oh, right. it. Uh, you know, and, and I and, and I get the well, comparison about some some of the media stuff. So this was just what I was going to say quickly, which was just like that. I I I kind of hate the way. Like, okay, I mean, I was just talking about being engaged in like real world politics, and I'm, I'm just going to spend like 90 seconds talking about like an activity that's very very distant from that, but it's just one that happens to be important to me. I like I, I really hate the way that a lot of leftists approach debates because what I see a lot of people doing is like really missing the most important thing and like the thing that makes debating most valuable. I mean, except for as like an intellectual exercise, I'm not going to shit on that. There's value to that. Right. But like beyond that, right. What gives us significance beyond that is in that super fragmented media landscape, Taibi was writing about, it's your only chance to talk to somebody else's audience in the normal course of things. And what I see a lot of leftists doing is when they get that chance, they kind of piss it away by doing things that I think are roughly equivalent to some of the atheist behavior the caller might not like, which are like what they're really trying to do is they're trying to say things that are going to make the people who already like them slow clap because, you know, oh, you know, you're saying to whoever the fuck, you know, Charlie Kirk you know, what I wish I could say to him, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's satisfying. It's cathartic, mm-hmm. but it's completely pointless as far as, like, reaching anybody who's not already with you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's almost all political commentary online that you see on Twitter. I mean, how often is it uh, substantive? It's so depressing. And it's on all sides, too. I mean, maybe the left might be slightly worse about this. And again, only because the left is actually more intellectual, meaning more insular. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a higher educated political... Uh, class there but yeah i is this about sectarianism is that what we're discussing here the problem of sectarianism i think it's related to what we're talking about but i i think that there's i think that there's also like i mean usually at least what i associate with the word sectarianism is sort of like you know intra-left which is i think part of the phenomenon but i think that like you know i don't know if if, if tom wants to weigh back in really quick before we go to the next caller yeah. do that but like I, I think what i'm hearing is more about how the left is engaging with or is spectacularly failing to engage with anybody who's out outside me, of the tent. Let me give a little yeah. white pill. Let me do a little white pill on this. Um, okay. So, so we, what we see and hear now is, you know, literally millions, I guess, people saying stupid shit about politics in public, uh, right? Millions all the time. Every damn day we see just oceans of stupid statements about politics made in public. That's right. brand new. That's only been the last 10 to 20 years. Right. Um, no doubt about it. Now, here's the thing, though. Is that evidence uh, of how stupid people are, generally, the people? Or is it one part of the bigger picture, which is that there are also countless other people who are actually became really smart about politics in the last 10 or 20 years precisely because of the Internet and because of all this talking about politics? So I have a feeling because of these new technological changes, there are actually far more people who are smart and public politically, and they're just more yeah. people, but they're also, but the, but the stupid people are simply more, uh, we can hear them now. They now have a voice. They now have a public forum, which they didn't have before. So I actually think, and this is, of course, is for any, regardless of your politics, this is an important thing. I think, I think it's actually a great time to be political 
I think there's a ton of stupidity, no doubt, but I think there's more, there will be more comrades and allies and fellow travelers out there than ever before, regardless of your political persuasion. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, Tom, do you, do you have anything you wanted to say to cap that off before we move on to the next caller? Uh, no, you guys pretty much uh, answered my question, you know, very articulate and whatnot. I, I guess the only thing I would piggyback on that is, uh, yeah, it, it definitely seems a bit like, you know, a lot of sectarianism and tribalism. Maybe mm-hmm. just, yeah. you know, the left just... We don't seem to do tribalism that well cause with all the infighting. And right-wingers really do kind of seem to circle the wagons much now, better. And we, I'll just have, leave it at that. Thank you. The left just has more tribes, that's all. <laughs> all Everybody's tribalistic. I mean, that, you're right, Tom. Thank you for saying that word. I mean, that is maybe, to me, the root of all the problems in political discourse is tribalism. That's what stops people from thinking. Yeah, yeah. This the uh, to go back to Marx who talked about the ruthless criticism of right. that exists. Uh, you know, it's it's the uh, it's not the ruthless criticism of everything that's not on my team. Uh, that's right. That's okay, right. let's. Uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but but uh, you want to try to get to a couple more callers. Sure. All right. Cool. Uh, let me just um, let me just start with people who are not names who have. Uh, I see the queue a lot just to make sure that they get a chance to talk right now. And then if we have time, we'll, we'll try to get to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian. All right. Ian, are you there? Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, Hey, how are you doing? Um, I'm not really sure how to transition the conversation. And I got into the queue back when uh, we were talking about the new atheism movement and those things. I'm in uh, Buffalo, New York. Yeah. And uh, that's where CFI started. So there used to be a vibrant, uh, I don't know, new atheist community that I was part of. And we would get together every week. There would be like reading things, not just about religion, uh, but about politics leftist usually in nature and it was seeing the decay of that seeming to mirror as Thaddeus was talking before kind of uh, a bit of an anti-intellectualism happening on the left now Thaddeus pointed to it a little bit hmm. uh, before that time but I, I the vibrancy of the conversations really started to to just, 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 uh, just FYI, yeah. uh, Ian, you're you're breaking up a fair amount. Um, we're having, we're having, you're dropping a lot of words, Ian. We're having trouble hearing you. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, is this a little better? I'm I'm in my apartment. It yeah, that's be- much this that that is that is much better. I know sometimes when I'm like on my phone, even walking around my apartment, I'll like if you just maybe like right now, if you just stand still where you are, I, I think we can hear you well. I'm frozen. Uh. Good. So, so, um, anti-intellectualism, anti-intellectualism. And this is about the time that identity politics started coming to the fore. And Uh. I'm somebody who's, as my dad went to the new school, studied Marx, uh, PhD level. I've been, uh, 
somewhat Marxist my whole life, what that would mean. And um, it's been interesting to see throughout my life where I remember being in elementary school and high school of kind of, I mean, you couldn't even talk about Marx. Now it's talked about more, but the people who are coming in, who want to talk about these sorts of things, it is at a very vapid level that I don't know how to overcome this in like a serious way. I mean, you, you guys have kind of been talking about this the whole time, but then I went to law school, similar sorts of thing. I started at the philosophy and law society, wanted to think more deeply. You have interests at a certain surface level, and it seems exciting where a lot more people on the surface seem like, oh man, these are great issues, X, Y, Z, but they don't really have the interest in deeply thinking about them, which is a weird phenomenon. There was a girl specifically, she had a Noam Chomsky tattoo. I'm like, wow, this <laughs> woman's going to be, okay. we're going to be best friends. Yeah. Profoundly unread. I had professors okay. who called themselves Marxists, literally had never read it. And they okay. weren't even interested. I, I had given them things and it. Here's why. Okay. Now you, I, yeah. you unlock, you unlock the answer to everything. Okay. So I, I talked about, I talked about the, what I see as the intellectual bankruptcy on the left, which I date to about the eighties, 1980s. Could be a little earlier. Actually, you know, come to think of it, the last scholarship in my field, which is U.S. history, that was truly radical was in the early 1970s, so the new, the new left historians. So what has happened, you know, in the last 50 years on the left? What's been the biggest victory on the left in the United States in the last 50 years? The seizure of the English history and philosophy departments, right? Mm -hmm. English, so they, English they captured, related, but keep going. <laughs> well, not, well, yeah, not analytic, right? But, but academia, right? Universities. Yeah. So even though not every single department is captured by the left, they have captured the administrations. So that every, all the, the political discourse coming out of the administrations, the universities themselves, it's all left-wing left talk, right? Uh, there's no, you guys agree with that, don't you? Uh, sort of. I, I, I think that it's I think that it's like progressive in a certain like kind of insidiously corporate way. But but I think I know what you're saying. Left language. Yeah, bro left broadly left liberal language. in my experience. Left, yeah, leftish language, though. Right. I mean, you're not. It's OK. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I yeah. yeah. Sure. I, I know what you mean. Keep, keep so going, there's no yeah. question that the liberal left and it is the liberal left. Absolutely. Has had. And here's the word a monopoly. A monopoly on that on that institution, which unfortunately, until very recently, was the only place where you could think for a living, right? And so that was where that's where all the intellectual work happened was in the university. And when you have a monopoly, and everybody in the history department is a fan of the New Deal, and everybody in the history department voted for Bill Clinton. And everybody in the English department is a member of Black Lives Matter. There's not a whole lot of thinking going on because no one has to think because there is no conflict. There is no disagreement. When you have no disagreement, you never have to debate. When you don't have to debate, you don't have to think. And so you get dumb. And that is exactly what I experienced as a professor for 25 years at the New School for Social Research, at Columbia yeah. University, at Occidental College, all of them. These people don't, they're, they're like infants because they are, they live in incubators. <clears throat> and when they get out there in the public, you may have noticed when professors get out 
on you know a cable news show or a podcast and have to actually debate someone head to head who's an actual right wing intellectual who has fundamentally different ideas and is smart about it they dissolve they can't handle it because they're not used to fighting because they've had this monopoly because of their institutional victory which they achieved in the 1960s and 70s it was the worst thing that could have happened to the left and i think that accounts for why it has failed yeah i mean i think that um yeah that's that's a that's an interesting answer i i guess i think that um you know part of it depends you know what you mean by the left and, and it's kind of funny because sure. like the three things the sure. three things that you just listed off left liberal uh not Marxist uh, left, not the Marxist left, the left liberal yeah, yeah, yeah. wing. And, yeah, and, and I think the three three things that you listed off are all probably positions that like most most like liberal academics hold. Although they're also incredibly incoherent, like because there's like mm-hmm. the, uh, what, 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 <laughs> yeah. what, what, what do you say? Likes the New Deal, likes Black Lives Matter, likes Bill Clinton, right? I mean, you could like maybe make sense of like two any two of those. Three, most depending people. which which two you pick, definitely not all three, right? Arguably, <laughs> arguably, arguably, the most racist institu- uh, administrations in American history, the the Roosevelt and Clinton administrations, in terms of actual damage done to black people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I Yeah, yeah. I, I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would argue about the the Roosevelt one, but I'm certainly with you on Clinton. I think in the Roosevelt case, I think that it's like. I think like I think America was definitely an apartheid state in the thirties. Like that's not hyperbole, but uh have but you read have, that, you, have you read Ira Katznelson's stuff on this, on the racism of the New Deal? Yeah, so I would there's a whole argument that, that goes on about this, like 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 Adolf Fried, who I mentioned earlier, like has like a piece yeah. of the New Re- New Republic where uh that I I think if you probably just Google like Adolf Fried New Deal, like you, know, you can probably find. I mean I, I think that there are like because this was all playing out against the background of an apartheid state, and also because I think that there are mm-hmm. like all of these weird like political compromises that happen, that there are equivalents even in like like when like social services are being introduced in some European countries where like race isn't so much the element, but they're still like powerful reactionary landowners you have to cut weird deals with to like exclude people who work for them, basically, you know. But uh, uh, but but I think that like. I think that there is some like super object like I think that like some of what people who say that are objected to is right. I think that like 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 is stuff that that happened. I think that if you're grading on a curve of um <clears throat> of like people who like held executive power in this apartheid state that the US was until the sixties, I think that I think that actually in many ways I would argue that it's one of the ones that you know, that wasn't as bad. I mean, I think that there is a reason why in 1936 there was this like huge shift in black voting patterns. Um, but that's none of that's to, to, to let like FDR off the hook for like making like nasty little deals with Southern Democrats, which like there was plenty of, you know, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, I, I anyway, but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly on a larger topic, I think that like, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, like I think new D you know, you know, maybe you could. There are ways that you could fit a couple of these things in together, like all put together. They're all over the place, but I, I, I do, I do definitely recognize what you're talking about. Like I recognize tons of academics that I've noted that description. Um, well, I'm talking about the intellectual monopoly that the left, the liberal yeah, yeah. left, has held, and the and the intellectual laziness and atrophy, right? That I think is the consequence of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, I think that there's like a certain kind of like. 
I think I would agree that there's like a that there are certain assumptions uh, that about uh, sort of like regular Democrat Republican politics, and also about sort of like you know the you know I mean I think the respect in which that sort of like uh, like there's a kind of like identity liberalism I sort of think of as like human resources department liberalism that like mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I think in some ways is most rampant at universities in some ways that's kind of where it's born, but like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but um, it's very like, you know, in some ways, even like a really watered down kind of uh, left liberal sort of, sort of um, progressivism, like in some ways, you know there are respects in which it winds up within there are respects in which it does it but i think part of it but I, but i do i do think that there's like an effect of that which is that people don't um there you know there are certain kinds of assumptions that people make that uh that that they just like that they don't they legitimately don't see question i think that's true i think that i think yeah. that, like this the sort of um you know like like in weird ways too right because it's like you know, you listed off, you know, cause like, I think even I would actually be fascinated. I don't know what, the, I don't know what this is, but like, I, I would really like to see somebody like do like a, like really extensive surveys of like all the political views, even of like economics professors, because I think uh-huh. that like, e- even though in certain ways, most like academic economists are, you know, like, very very like you know they all you know they all love the shit out of capitalism and all of that like mm-hmm, i also mm-hmm. think i also suspect that like some of this kind of identity social justice discourse has probably gotten even in there right you know so sure. uh, I, sure. I i think it'd be re- i think it'd be really interesting to look at and and i do think like uh and yeah as you say right i mean this is what you get like you know this is this is like the only thing historically where you get paid to like think and if you're if you basically want to do that which i think after you know what i hope is a much bigger sort of retreat in real world political activity than anything that's happened now right after the end of the like 60s and 70s new left a lot of people it's like what they really wanted to do was like political activism and then that sort of dried up they ended up going to universities because you know right like that's that seems like the obvious backup plan um you know can i can i can I jump in to underscore these points? Sure, sure, sure. So, Ben, you mentioned like a survey of political views, right? Uh. And kind of what I was saying about the girl with the Chomsky tattoo is the weirder phenomenon of a prima facie agreement, substantively and day to day total disagreement on anything that's not just like the bullet points, right? Uh And why I think that that is most important now is given that, you know, Adolf Reed's point, is there even a left now, whatever it is, it's very much in a uh, in-between plasmatic state where it's like, how is it going to get into the next gestalt? Like, what's the next gestalt going to be, right? And if people aren't intellectually engaging, debating about these things, there's also this increase in the liberal left of taboos, things that can't be questioned. Right. 
what normally ends up coming out is just this liberal thing again and again with increasingly radical rhetoric and yet substance remains the same. And it's a, uh, it's a, I don't, uh, personally debilitating phenomenon to witness like time and time again. Um, where, and then I just, you know, especially being in law school, seeing everybody say all these things are like, well, now I got a job at the DA in New York, uh, which is very, a uh, very weird thing. Um, yeah, I hope the girl with the Chomsky tattoo is the one who got that job. Oh, she wasn't, it was a different one, but it was one of her friends. Uh, so I don't know. I don't have a quite, it's, I've yeah. been stuck in the state since Bernie. Um, and, uh, and then Trump, that was a big thing with Russiagate, and everybody went full Trump. And uh, it, it it leads a real problem getting new people into the, into the left. When there is this increase in taboo, there's no debate of getting people that are less educated, but broadly working class, there ends up being a divide because there's no ability to talk to people that aren't fully on the side of, you know, all of the required kind of language and all of this, and a a cultural divide. I know as Marxists, we're supposed to only look at the material divide, but the cultural divide, as far as like the working class knowing what what to do, who makes the most sense in the very limited amount of news that people get. Now, I have a lot of friends that they're not really that political or anything to be amazed at big news stories that they have no idea about what's going on. And so all they see are kind of, uh, I don't know, this the left getting broadly weird. And then, uh, you know, the right wing sometimes, like guys like Jordan Peterson, have a lot of force because they, in quick sound bites, sound a lot more appealing. And, I, and this seems to like be accelerating in a way that is problematic anyway well they don't they don't sound they don't sound more appealing they are more appealing well right and i and i I do not like jordan peterson one bit but that's just a fact i mean he is more appealing that's why that's why people spend a hundred dollars and wait in line to go see him speak um but listen here's what the best thing could happen for the left abolish tenure and (laughs) abolish the accreditation system which grants a monopoly both the, the universities and the professors who work there who hold the tenure, the senior professors, they have a monopoly, right? They're never going to leave. It's unbelievable. They can say whatever they want. They never have to debate anybody. They don't have to think. They don't have to write. And this that's the leadership of the American left, right? Tenured professors, am I right? That's the leadership of the American left. It always has been. Tenured professors at elite universities. That's who we're talking about. People who have lifetime appointments, Right. It, well, you I, want it, You want to get some real thinking, some real creative thinking, and you want to get some thinking that is is necessary for survival, right? You're going to have to abolish this whole system, which made which has created this whole class of of fat cat intellectuals who lead your damn movement. It's the worst possible scenario. Well, I, I, there, I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of with you on on accreditation, but uh, but I, I think everybody. Uh, you know, it's going to sound like a joke, but I really kind of believe it. I think, I think, uh, I think everybody should have tenure. I think that if you, uh, I think oh that God. if you, I, I think if you work at the, uh, uh, I think if, I think if you, uh, I think if you work at, uh, 
I think if you work at a grocery store, you should have tenure. I think that the uh, you know because because it doesn't it doesn't mean you it doesn't mean you have a lifetime appointment. It's just like being a made guy in the mafia. It means that you can't get whacked without a sit down and a good reason. Uh, so so I, I I'm all for I, you know I, I I think that I think that everybody, including in academia, I think lack of job security is more of a problem than excessive job security. I think that in fact I think mm. I think the fact that in academia most of the classes now are being taught by people who um, have like, you know, are, are like spend all their time driving around between four campuses because they, because uh, uh, they, because they have, yeah. uh, you know, like, no. like, 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 I think, I think that's a huge problem. Now, I, I've kind of, uh, I'm, they, I'm also old. Quick, quick rejoinder, quick rejoinder to that. Sorry, sure, 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 sure. Like that, that, that adjunct army of the proletariat that you're talking yeah. about, which I used to be a member of, uh, they have to, they have to pair it. Right. What the what the leadership, what the tenured faculty, what the senior professors are saying to get to get ahead. So that's why they all sound alike. That's why there's zero diversity in, in politics among them. Yes. That's, why I got, that's why I got thrown out, because I didn't do that. I didn't conform. Yeah. To the, yeah. I mean, and I'm not that's not making me a hero. I'm just saying that's that's the fact. Sure, we know sure. this, right. You can't you just simply can't get a job if you have heterodox ideas. So whether yeah. they're left or right, you know, Nick, my friend, Nick DeGenova, like he was kicked out because he's too much of a commie, you know, and an yeah. anti-imperialist commie, you know, who actually took the side of the Somali, <laughs> the Somali, <laughs> the Somalis who attacked the Black Hawk Down guys. Um, but, you know, so they don't tolerate anything that's outside that li- left liberal discourse. Um, yeah. and, and, and it's the senior professors yeah. who determine, that's my point, sorry, it's, it's the senior professors with tenure mm. who totally determine the content of that discourse. They determine the politics of the university, which means they determine the politics of the Democratic Party. From my experience, it was much more bottom-up than that, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Sorry. So I do want to just get into, you know, just for a second, though, right? Because I, I want to, because I don't want to get let this get lost in all of this, right? I, I think mm-hmm. it's also... You know, one reason I have mixed feelings about about some of this discussion is that, like, there's a big part of me that thinks, like, okay, we're, we're, we have, like, I see a lot of terms, like, sort of flying back and forth here, right? There's, like, the, you know, the left, liberal left, the Democratic Party, you know, and, and, and so, like, there's a big part of me that, like, hears all this and says, yeah, I mean, none of this, you know, none of this stuff has anything to do with the uh, the left as, as I understand it, right? I mean, most of these people are my enemies, but then, like, but then I think... The, the respect in which it maybe might, you know, know maybe about it, actually, it is still relevant to the kind of left I care about, is that there are certain basic assumptions that I think, uh, even though they're they're sort of born in liberalism and they only, and, you know, when I say liberalism there, I mean, like, in the contemporary political sense, uh, you know, like the Democratic Party, you know, universities, blah, 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 Um like they're sort of born in liberalism and they only really make sense in liberalism, but partially because they are so hegemonic in universities and because universities are a place where even the actual left often lives. Uh, I, I think, you know, I know in my case, I mean, there, there are certain like, you know, I don't know, like go back to, you know, we, we keep mentioning all three, like, you know, we can talk about Reed or like the field sisters or people like that. Like, like a lot of what they were saying about you know the difference between class and identity and you know not sort of turning identity categories into ontological you know categories um is stuff that like 
it took me a long time to kind of wrap my head around that and to realize that they were right because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really make any sense if you think very hard about it that is like this kind of identity liberalism that is um which by the way just in case anybody listens to this unsympathetically does not mean fucking being socially progressive it's you know they you could be you know, you can have socially progressive policy views without without endorsing, you know, identity liberalism. But like, <laughs> like, I mean, like being against segregation. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Stuff, yeah. yeah stuff like <laughs> you, that, you can you, know? you can be opposed to segregation and still not be pro woke, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I have a, uh, um, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> you know, yeah. So there's a lot there's a lot to be said <laughs> about that. But like, just just like you know, you you can have. You know, you could, you know, be all for, you know, I, I want every, you know, like, I, I, I think that there should be, you know, I think there should be laws to make sure that, you know, that, that you know, people aren't getting, like, fired for being trans or whatever. Like, like, like I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. But, like, I, I, I think that's consistent. You know, that's all very consistent sure. with this. But, like, the, um, but the problem, uh, but, like, a lot of those sort of assumptions about, like, sort of, you know, reifying identity categories and like thinking that they're explanatorily like do work that they're never, you know, that like just doesn't make sense. And, and I think that the reason why, like for years and years and years, I mean, I think if, I think if asked, I would have like, I, I think I would have said, I agree with all these things that don't really make sense given that you actually spend five minutes arguing about it is, is precisely, is precisely what you're saying, right. You know, that it's, it's never, uh, it's never questioned that if, if people, if, and, and if people do start questioning it, you know, like it, it sounds like, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't even think you have to be very dramatic about it. Like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not like, you know, people are having like some horrible, you know, like, you know, it's, it's not that you have to cast everybody as like a horrible authoritarian. I think it's just that like, it, it just sounds like, wait, what the hell are you saying? That doesn't make sense. Cause that's, you know, you're, you're questioning stuff that I've, you know, that like is, is just sort of in the air, you know, that the, uh, yeah. you know, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's a, I do think there's a dimension of this that you're absolutely right about that, like that, that shit does make people uh, incredibly lazy. And also I think people forget, like, I mean, there's this, re- this is like a really, really basic point, but I think people forget when they spend their time in academia or in like certain kinds of political media, uh, like, as simple as this sounds, I mean, people just forget that like most people in the world don't share all of their assumptions about all of this shit. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, right. Well, it's a narcissism that's just rampant. It's a narcissistic imperialism. You assume that everyone thinks the way you do, that all women in America favor uh, um, pro-choice, that they're all pro-choice, that no, no woman in her right mind would be opposed to abortion, which is one of... To me, it's like the height, and I'm pro-choice, but like it's the height of sort of liberal, liberal, arrogant imperialism, right? This, this, they, they always say, well, an attack on abortion rights is an attack on women. It's like, huh? <laughs> it's a, it was that last yeah. time I checked, it's roughly half of women in this country want abortion to be illegal, at least partly. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and you could like, and you could say it's a, it's an attack on you know women's rights, and I would even agree with you. But like, also like, uh, but yeah, this is actually the example that Matt Brunig uses. That he has got this great essay called uh, "What Does Identitarian Deference Require?" where he he points out that there's this weird thing that happens where people have this official view that they'll like pretty much spell out almost in these words that like on mm-hmm. anything that like pertains to oppression. 
you should defer to like the people who are oppressed and like, you should just like think whatever they think. Right. And, um, but it's like, wait, hold up. Like, yeah, there is like a gender gap on abortion, but it's not nearly as big as a lot of people assume it is, you know, that there's a, mm-hmm. uh, like, mm-hmm. like there is, there is, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's certainly North of like 40% or whatever, if you know, of, oh, wow. of, 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 of women who are, who are pro-life and it should not stretch like the boundaries of your imagination that there could be cultural shifts in the future where it shifts from being 60, 40 pro choice among women to being 60 pro 40 pro life. So in that case, mm-hmm. you say that like, listen, just listen to women mean that you have to be pro life. Mm-hmm. Like I hope not. Right. Like, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like right. what it really exposes is that like people who say this, like don't really, it's not exactly, they don't believe it, but they've never thought about it enough to realize that like on closer inspection, they wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to challenge you on, and I, I do have to go, but I do, I, I'm dying sure, to actually sure, sure. probe you on this thing. So this whole, you know, there's the left and then there's uh, this mass of the Democratic Party and liberalism and the New York Times, that what social, maybe social democracy, whatever you want to call that stuff, right? You, uh, and you were sort of trying to divide the two, right? Uh, um, and I knew this is commonly done and I, I usually do that too. I, I'm, I'm always the guy saying to libertarians when you say the left who do you mean is it the you know Uh, is the marxist socialist real left or is it the liberal bullshit left um well the thing is though man i don't know i don't know if there's much of a line between the two anymore that's meaningful because of the institutionalization of the left and this is this goes back to my thesis tonight you know which is about the institutionalization and monopolization of the left um how many people on the left do you know like Uh. people you consider to be left you know, uh, who don't vote for Democrats. Um, I mean, I actually can think of a fair number, but I also think that like, it, how powerful, also, how important are they though? Like how, how influential and important are they? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like how, like part of the problem is that I think almost nobody I, I would think of as a leftist is very, is very, is very influential. Like, I mean, I, I guess maybe you mean like within category, but like, uh, like, I don't know, like an earlier caller mentioned Brianna Joy Gray. I mean, she's certainly somebody with that position. And she's like, you know, she was Bernie right. Sanders press secretary. And she's, you know, certainly at least like a big name podcaster, which unfortunately does almost count as being important right now, which is a sign, which is like a pathology. But, um, it, you know, wait, as a, pod, as she's a podcast. She's anti-Democrat? Oh, yeah, yeah. She, she had a she's... big argument. She had a big, like. Uh, she and her, well, then co-host, uh, Virgil Texas, uh, uh, from Chapo, uh, had, yeah. had this, had this big argument with Noam Chomsky about that just before the election, oh. uh, that about, about whether people should vote for Democrats. Good for her. Like, I know Jimmy Dore has that position. Uh, Good. the, uh, you know, we, we could probably like list off a handful of people like that. Now I should Great. say though, right. You know, yeah. cards on the table, uh, you know who's not on that list hmm. is me, right? I think that, like, right. I think that, like, the Democrats, <laughs> the Democrats suck and they're terrible. But I also think that, like, uh, that election, you know, like, I mean, to me, to me, an election is like, you know, something in like a Saw movie where you have a choice about which of two rooms to go through, and you know, like, you have like, you're, are you, are you going to do the one where they're going to be the like knives that fly at you or they're going to, are you going to be the one where like the, uh, I don't know, they wouldn't have this in a Saw movie, but you know, the tiger comes out and tries to eat you or whatever. Like it's a, 
you know, it, it's, it's a, I, I think moralizing it, but you know, my perspective is that moralizing it is a, is a mistake that it should be like, yeah. uh, that, that you should just see it as like, you know, like, like how would you act in that situation? You would just do like, okay, what do I think my, me and my friends are more likely to survive? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the one you, that's the one you pick. And I, I, I think that there are like dangers in both cases that are different to, <clears throat> You know, Republicans winning and Democrats winning, but you know, I don't think that the, um, you know, I I think that the I think that like, um, I think there's a I think there's a harm reduction argument, and I think that there's a I, I think that there's a, um, and I think there's like a strategic argument that like you know that like if if you know like if Trump uh, was reelected, he would, you know, and I'm always in a weird position on this. I talked to you about this offline a while ago that like, because like. I'm always kind of the odd man out on this shit because like most people on the left, like either have like people always either end up being like too conciliatory about Trump or not seeing enough of a difference or thinking that Trump is a Nazi. And like, (laughs) and and, and, like my position is that like, I I don't, you know, I don't think he's Reagan. He's basically yeah, Reagan, he's Reagan. Right? He's Reagan, yeah. right? You know, like like like, like I don't I don't think yeah. he has to be a Nazi. I think he's just a Republican. You know, like and I think yeah. that like have, and like he does the things that Republicans do, like <laughs> mm-hmm. appoint hardcore union busters to the National Labor Relations Board and you know stuff like mm-hmm. that. Right. So like yeah, exactly. I, I, I think there are I think there's strategic reasons to to not want that to to happen. I also don't think like I also don't think that you should be. Um, you know, I, but I'm also not like a, you could push them to the left well, guy. I, I, I just think like, like, like let, let, let's put it this way. I think that like, this is something that on all sides of intra-left debates about this stuff. I think the American left gets way too hysterical and moralistic about this. I think that the like better approach is like the French left, right? That like, they all hate Macron for obvious reasons, but like, um, but when the, you know, but when the election came down to a runoff between, uh, Macron and and Le Pen, you know, who's the you know actual fascist kind of in that case, you know, ambiguous, but you know, certainly like National Front comes out of that <clears> tradition, <throat> like mm-hmm. uh, everybody voted for left parties in the first, you know, everybody of the French left voted for left parties in the first round of the the primary, and then when it came down to the like the the runoff between like the quasi fascist and like the mainstream conservative, everybody held their noses and you know voted for voted for Macron in the, in the runoff. And like, I don't think you have to like lie to people and say that like the person you're voting for isn't that bad. I also don't think that it's, <clears throat> I also don't think that it's that big a deal. Cause I think that, you know, you like really, you're probably not going to have that much impact at the beginning, but anyway, that would be, that would be my position. But I, but I guess your, but I guess your, your point is that I, if, if, you know, given that, what, what does it matter, right? If, if when the chips are down, you're going to vote for Democrats, then like, you well, know. It, it either means that you really are just a social Democrat um, yeah. or or you are constantly compromising your politics to fit yeah. in this Democratic box. Um, and I think it's probably the last. Well, it's either. It's, it's both. You know, I think that's probably what you it is what you have to do as Ben Burgess. I mean, to to make an argument for the necessity of voting for Joe Biden, you obviously have to compromise something big in your politics to do that. And if you do that over and over and over again, every election, which every damn near every leftist I've ever known has done. Um, and I've known Trotskyists and, you know, of all kinds, I'm talking about serious Marxists um, who vote Democrat consistently. Oh, You're going to, I think Trot- there's a Trot- Trotskyists, I thought they were all, I thought Trotskyists were all like, 
you know, I thought even like the sort of soft Trotskyists were all like vote for the Green Party people, and then like the hardcore uh, Trotsky, you know. I I'll, I I would bet <clears throat> that every single one of my parents' comrades from the IS has voted for a Democrat more than once in their life, in their adult life, in their political life. I know my Democrat. One second. So, I mean, so there is, I think there's an institutionalization of the intellectual quality of the American left for this reason, because of its attachment to power, both in the universities and in the Democratic Party. It has direct connections to power in those two massive institutions, which arguably are the most powerful institutions in the world of the last hundred years. Every war, every major war of the United States of the last hundred years has come out of the universities through the Democratic Party, except for Iraq, right? But all the big ones until Iraq were came out of the Democratic Party and the universities. That's where the left is connected, right? That's where it is. That's where its power is. That's where it exerts its power. And every two to four years, it goes through these all these intellectual gymnastics to justify voting for these motherfuckers. Um, and this is, and again, this goes for people who call themselves socialists. I guess I know I'm well aware of like the, the wing who I respect, you know, the, the, the Brianna Joy types, but that's always been a tiny minority, even on the hard left. So, I mean, they always compromise and succumb eventually to the pressure to get God, for, especially with Trump. Didn't, how many, how many people, how many real leftists voted for Clinton? Hillary Clinton just did because Trump was going to be a Nazi. And then what, what ended up happening? So um, it's, I think that accounts for the bankruptcy, the intellectual bankruptcy of the left. Libertarians, one thing you, I think you can say about libertarians is that very few of them vote Republican, actually. I mean, the serious libertarians, the actual intellectuals, very, very few of them are, are vote for Republicans. And I think that accounts, you know, it doesn't mean they're right about anything, but I do think it accounts for them being smart. Because they're always dissidents. They're mm -hmm. always dissidents. Where a lot of people on the left don't, like Noam Chomsky half the time is talking like he's the boss around here. Because he's the one telling us to obey COVID policies. He's the one telling us to act correctly. He's the one who's telling us to vote for Biden and Clinton before him. You know, Chomsky's been voting Democrat for a long time. He's the leader of the radical left in this country. So, well, uh, you know, his independence of thought <laughs> no longer exists. Noam Chomsky hasn't had an independent original idea since about 1972. Am I right? What has Noam well, Chomsky said originally since then? <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't. I don't know. I don't know how much. Uh, I don't know how much original originality matters. But if the question isn't isn't uh, you know is it original? But um, but you know in terms of uh, of opposition to like what you know what Democrats were saying, I think I think quite a few. I mean, I think that the. Um, sure. You know, I, I, I think that he and, you know, I, I would also point out like, um, I mean, I, I guess I actually would be curious about numbers about, um, you know, libertarians. But I know that the you know, I, I know like Walter Block, for example, has exactly the same position on um, on voting that uh, that Noam Chomsky does, but in reverse. Right. Which is that they mm -hmm. both think you could do what you want if you live in safe states. But, you know, right. Block, you the know Block is a minority. He was a very yeah. clear minority. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you're right. I, I think. I think you also. I, I also oh, did yeah. hear a, an important qualification there about the uh, serious ones. I, I mean, certainly, I think like, you know, I'd be very surprised if the majority of people who tell pollsters that they're libertarians did vote for for Republicans. But 
I mean, I, I guess the, the more important question is, like, is it actually the case that um, that making, like, tactical decisions like that about what to, you know, what to do for five minutes with filling out a ballot is this sort of, like, great spiritual question that, like, compromises the core of your politics or whatever, or whether it's just, like, this is what... Um, you know, like, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tactical question. You know, you don't need to get that excited about it one way or the other. You can have, you know, like, 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 I don't think you have to lie about how bad anybody is. You could just, you could just make like straightforward, you know, you could just make straightforward, uh, you know, you can just make straightforward comparative, you know, arguments say, yeah, these, these people are both my enemies, but I can choose which enemy, you know, I'd rather fight with about, about which, you know, and, and, and I, I, that that doesn't seem like a big um like that doesn't seem like a big contradiction to to me like that just that just sort of seems like like sort of that that just kind of seems minimally uninterested i think that like if anything i think that like the hard left you know the people you know you're talking about like the that came out of like the is and you know whatever like i i, I think do have a history of uh making a big deal about how very important it is that you not you know ever vote that way like Hal Draper, you know, it's like the leading light of the sure. inter- international socialists. Mm-hmm. And he has this whole essay about, you know, the, the evils of lesser evilism. And it's like, I, I guess I just, I don't, I, I think that people made a big deal about that because they were so marginalized that like, this was like the big way that they could, exp- you know, this was like a big way that could express their politics. I mean, who they voted for. I mean, I just, I just don't, I just don't see that as a, as a significant question. I think that's, I think that's like the big sort of point of difference between us on this. Um, mm. may, okay. may I, I, I feel oh. like I've been taking up w- way too much time, but no, there's okay. one thing that, uh, I wanted to make sure that I said just because I've been trying to get this, uh, out there. This, this is off topic, but it is essentially on topic is uh, a legal decision out of the Court of Appeals in New York State, uh, which is our Supreme Court, for those that don't know. Uh, And it's uh, from October 2020. It's a People v. Baddox. And uh, it is um, one of the most mind-blowing cases that, I I mean, I haven't seen anybody talk about the reasoning um, in it, but Basically, it involved uh, a lawyer quoting um, his client in where the on cross examination where the client said the n word. It was a white lawyer, yes. and a juror stood up. I can't believe you're saying that word over and over again. The juror was allowed to stay on the jury. The lawyer's client ended up being convicted. It was appealed all the way to the top and it was upheld as and seen as not prejudicial to keep the person who protested and stopped the lawyer from cross-examining. She was allowed to stay on the jury and the decision in it is ludicrous to the point where they don't even say the actual quote that happened. And the only judge to who wrote the dissent, which is a good dissent was the, uh, only black justice on the court. It's people be bat- baddocks to see where the rubber meets the road as far as the intellectual. Ro- I think it is a, a prime example and it's just a baffling decision. So, 
I, uh, I got to run, guys. Uh, this is above and beyond. Uh, thank you so much for all the time. Hey, man. Thank you. It was fun. All right. Uh, thanks for, for listening in. My apologies for those last couple of calls we didn't get to. I just, I, I thought the discussion was interesting enough. I didn't want to, uh, end any earlier than this, but, uh, but if uh, in normal, in normal circumstance, I would have cut off a lot earlier. So, um, uh, thanks all. Uh, see you on, uh, on Thursday. We're going to have the same start time on Thursday at five thirty. left is best. <laughs>